Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. Last week I kind of started talking about the patriarchs, and I want to spend some time in the coming weeks looking at the lives of the patriarchs to kind of get us in the mood of that today and help us think a little bit about the matter of the patriarchs. I want to start by reading Psalm 112. And in my studies this week, as I was looking through the Psalms and and considering the stories we find in Genesis uh, regarding the life of Abraham, it seemed to me as though there were some parallels that could be drawn between Psalm 112 and things that you see in the life of Abraham. I'm not going to say that David had in mind the patriarch Abraham when he wrote Psalm 112, But I do see similarities there, and they broadly apply to the lives of God's people in general, particularly those in the New Testament church. I think you're going to find categories of things discussed here that have been in effect in your own life, and they're sort of part of our common experience in the faith. Psalm 112 says, Praise ye the Lord, blessed is the man that feareth the Lord, that delighteth greatly in his commandments. His seed shall be mighty upon earth. The generation of the upright shall be blessed. Wealth and riches shall be in his house, and his righteousness endureth forever. Unto the upright there ariseth light into the darkness. He is gracious and full of compassion and righteous. A good man showeth favor and lendeth. He will guide his affairs with discretion. Surely he shall not be moved forever. The righteous shall be in everlasting remembrance. He shall not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is fixed, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He shall not be afraid until he shall see his desire upon his enemies. He hath dispersed. He hath given to the poor. His righteousness endureth forever. His horn shall be exalted with honor. The wicked shall see it and be grieved. He shall gnash with his teeth and melt away. The desire of the wicked shall perish. So let's carry those thoughts regarding the righteous and in contrast the wicked into the life of Abraham. And I want to start in Genesis chapter 11 today, looking at the life of this first patriarch, Abraham. And really I want to look at three aspects of this text as it relates to Abraham. It's really that he was called he was commanded, and he was blessed. And I think you're going to find all those things in effect in your own life, though the blessings may be different in some respects, though the commands you are given may be different in some respects, and in some respects the call, the thing you are called to do, may be different than what Abraham was called to do. Now, just to give you a little bit of history here, We're picking up the story of Abram, who was later named Abraham. I will probably go back and forth. I'll probably call him Abraham in most instances. Uh, I just think it's easier to do it that way. But when you see Abram, just know that later in the story he's renamed Abraham, and those refer to the same person. We find an interesting genealogy in the 11th chapter. So the 11th chapter of Genesis is actually the story of the Tower of Babel. So this is when languages were dispersed, people were dispersed as a result of trying to build this tower and following man's will rather than God's will. And we know that story, and I won't belabor it here, 
But later in that chapter, starting in verse 10 and going down to like verse 27 and a little bit beyond actually, you find one of the genealogies of the Bible. Now, if you do the math on this, and this could be your homework assignment for this week, people looking for ways to study the Bible, here's one of the things you can do. Starting in verse 10, you could start adding up how many years there were from the flood to Abraham. It's a pretty straightforward exercise. I'll give you a little bit of an outline of it. Verse 10, these are the generations of Shem. Shem was an hundred years old and begat Arphaxad two years after the flood. Well, there's two years, right? In the next verse, and Shem lived after he begat Arphaxad 500 years and begat sons and daughters. Now that's irrelevant to the timeline, right? He lived beyond that and he had a bunch of other kids, but we're not talking about them. So you can kind of ignore that as it relates to this timeline that I'm going to set before you. Verse 12, and Arphaxad lived five and 30 years and begot Selah, right? 35 years. So now you've got 37 years in total. Now you follow that exercise on out all the way through down to verse 26, 27 in that range. And you will come up with the time between the flood and um, the birth of Abram, who is Abraham. Okay, 292 years is what I come up with. So that's a fun exercise to do. If you find that one intriguing, you can go back to Genesis chapter 5. And there's another one you can do. It's the exact same sort of math exercise. If you look at Genesis chapter 5, it's kind of the whole chapter really. You can go from creation to the flood, right? So between Genesis chapter 5 and Genesis chapter 11, you can get the complete biblical timeline between creation and the advent of Abraham in this world. So that's kind of a fun exercise to do. But we're talking about, you know, say, call it 300 years after the flood is, is the period of time we're looking at here. At the end of chapter 11, we see mention of a few things, and I want to pick up one or two of them here. In verse 30, it says, but Sarai was barren. She had no children. This is Abraham's wife, right? Abram's wife, Sarai. The idea of a woman being barren is a prevalent theme in the Old Testament. And it's a very interesting one to study. But I just want to call it to note right here, right? Because it's involved in the later promises of God that were given to Abraham. So we find that his wife was barren. And in verse 31, And Terah took Abram his sons, and Lot the son of Haran his sons, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, and his son Abram's wife. And they went forth with them from Ur of the Chaldees to go unto the land of Canaan. And they came unto Haran and dwelt there. And the days of Terah were two hundred and five years, and Terah died in Haran. So that's kind of how chapter 11 ends. We pick up a few things there. They had already left Ur. Right? And that's why in the next verse we find this. Now the Lord had said unto Abram, Get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house unto a land that I will show thee. You see, this had happened before already. It's kind of saying they had already left, but before they did that, God had said this to Abram. So you can see this was kind of involved in why they left, but it's not laid out in strictly chronological order here, right? He's going back and saying, well, kind of this is why they left, right? Because the Lord had already said this to Abram. Now, a man who is hearing some sort of notion from God about something he should do 
is that a man that is dead in trespasses and sins, or is that a man who has spiritual life and spiritual sensibilities? This call to leave Ur is not regeneration, okay? Abram had to be a regenerate man for God to start having a conversation with him. You see what I'm saying? So this call that I have in view here, I want to try to distinguish this clearly at first. The Bible does refer to regeneration as a calling, okay? Romans 8 makes that very clear, right? You've got foreknown, predestinated, called, justified, and glorified. And that called in the context of Romans 8 is talking about the effectual call of regeneration. That's where God speaks life into one of His people. If you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ today, you are born again, and you are that way because God breathed life into you by His almighty power, by the working of His mighty power, is what the Bible says. Very similar to the way that God breathed natural life into Adam. It was a direct operation upon Adam. No intermediary. That's why we talk about immediate Holy Spirit regeneration. I'm not saying that when Adam was created, he was regenerate. I'm saying that in the way that God imparted natural life to Adam as an immediate act, so he imparts to his children spiritual life as a direct and immediate act. Right? The hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Right? It's straight from God to you. And the call that we're really talking about here is not the moment of Abram's regeneration. By the time God is telling Abram to do something, these things that we find in verse 1, Abram already has the ears to hear, right? It would be foolish for God to try to talk to a man that's dead in trespasses and sins and expect that there's going to be any result. How is Abram going to respond in faith to something he has no faith to believe, right? He has no ears to hear. He has no eyes to see these spiritual truths. So, it's important that we realize that when we're talking about this calling, we're talking about something God has for him to do in his life. It's not regeneration, but it requires regeneration as a prerequisite, else Abraham would not have been able to respond to it. You see that? So, all God's sheep are called in the effectual calling sense, but we are also called unto some measure of obedience and service to God in our lives. That's something that happens subsequent to being born again. That's something as, as you're in your life of faith, your walk of faith, there's things God's going to want you to do. As you study His Word, some of them are very evident, and they're things that God wants all of us to do. He wants us to obey the principles and precepts that Jesus Christ taught. That's something that's incumbent upon all New Testament Christians. We're all called to do that, right? But some people are called to be mothers, some people are called to be fathers. Some people are called to be pastors. Some people are called to be political appointees and elected officials. And there's other sorts of things that you may be called to do in your life that God might have you to do. Abram was called to leave Ur. This is part of what he was called to do. That doesn't mean you have to leave Ur. Just because Abram was called to leave Ur doesn't mean you've got to leave Arkansas or something like that. We need to be mindful of the fact that God has different things for different folks. Now, He commanded him to do something. I said Abram was called, commanded, and blessed. Now, what is the nature of this command? Well, in a word, it's go, right? God's people are called into action 
when God calls Abram to go, I'm sure that Abram was not left with the mystical sense that God told me to go, so I'm just going to stand here and wait for him to levitate me out of the land of Ur and into Canaan. This is the attitude that some old Baptists have had over the years about the notion of evangelism and sharing the gospel. Because of the errors that we've heard in other orders about how the gospel might be shared, we have at times overcorrected and just said, well, if God wants them to show up here, He'll just levitate them into the building. They'll just show up one day. Well, let's be clear about this. God can certainly do that, right? However, we have a message. We have the gospel, the evangel, the message of truth. And we are to be stewards of that. And shame on us if we have friends and family and others who know that we're old Baptists, but they've never heard us say anything about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Say anything about the hope that is within us and doing so with meekness and fear. That's what the New Testament talks about. So I want us to see that he was commanded and it was going to require something of him. He heard something that God told him to do and he was not thinking, well, I'm just going to sit back and watch God make this happen. Abram had some instrumentality in this. He was given faith and given a command. It is therefore incumbent upon him to exercise the faith God gave him and obey God. And he is praised for that in Hebrews chapter 11. But that's what he did. And God is going to require something of you. Say, oh, that doesn't sound like old Baptist doctrine to me. Well, it is. He's not requiring you to do something to finish the work of Christ so that you can live in glory with God, so that you can stand sinless before God. That's not the requirement. There's no requirements in that respect. Christ took care of that entirely. But He does require you to serve Him in this life. If you're going to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's going to require you to go in some sense. You may not have to go to Canaan, but you may have to go to church. You may have to go to your neighbor and help them out from time to time. You may have to show the love of Christ in a lot of ways that are going to require you to go. And Abram was not deceived into thinking that this was something God was going to do, irrespective of his will in the matter. Now, what was he told to, to do? Get thee out of thy country, and from thy kindred, and from thy father's house. Now, this is a very difficult matter here. Like most of us, probably pretty comfortable where we are. You've got your house, you've got things set up the way you want them to be. And, you know, you go home, you know how, you just kind of know how things are set up. You, you know how to run the laundry and where to put the, the dishes when they're done. And you know exactly where you keep your coffee mug so you can get it in the morning. And we get comfortable with home and our routines. And here's a married man who's living in this society. He's probably relatively set in his ways about these sorts of things. And I'm sure there were natural inclinations on the part of Abram that were like, yeah, it'd be a lot easier to just stay where I am. And I say that because I think all natural men have an inclination towards this. I know we have an inclination to not do that which God would have us to do. I've felt it too strongly too many times in my own life to deny that reality. But he's talking about, get thee out of thy country and from thy kindred and from thy father's house. Now, that's family. 
Move away from your family, out of your country, that's your location. I mean, consider for a moment how difficult some of these things would be to just, like God comes to you this afternoon and says, I want you to get out of your country and your kindred, leave your family behind and, and uh, go to a place I'm going to show you. Well, the implication here is that there's going to be some natural tendencies you have towards things that you're going to have to let go of if you're going to serve God. And they may be things that at times seem very, very precious to you and are very contrary to your natural mind. When you talk about leaving your country, the first thing that comes to mind for me, and I think was in play in Abraham's life, is you're going to have to learn to speak another language. Right? Now, people who grow up in Europe who are introduced to a lot of different languages. A lot of those people can speak five, six, seven languages. And when you're young, your mind is sort of a sponge that just absorbs all that stuff. It's just you're just learning words like crazy and, and you just hear it and you pick it up. You have a natural ability to do that. But as you grow older, that becomes much more difficult to do. Now, if you're a, if you're a middle-aged man and someone says, yeah, I want you to move to China irrespective of all that, I'm leaving my family behind and, you know, I don't know where my coffee mug's going to be. I don't know what kind of place I'm going to be living in. All my routines are broken. That would be difficult enough. But now, okay, you're going to have to learn Mandarin on top of that, right? It's a very daunting thing. All I'm trying to do is get us to really step into how difficult what Abram did was. It's not as simple as maybe it's made out to be. And I tried to think about that a lot this week. Going to another country involves going to a place where I don't understand the customs. I don't speak the language. From thy kindred and from thy father's house. I mean, there's deep roots in this community. And most people have strong family connections around them. And they're nearby. And they're people you see on a regular basis. And maybe you've seen those people and they've lived in your community and your family's nearby. And you've had that all your life. And now it's like, yeah. You just got to go somewhere else. And by the way, into a land that I will show thee. At this point, the actual location is not determined yet. It's not really laid out there. It's sort of like step out on faith is the way this originally lays out here. I'm going to show you where to go. I'm going to be your guide in this. And I want you to step out on faith and follow me. You're going to encounter in your life similar situations if you're trying to serve God. For God is going to ask you to step out on faith and obey Him and do the right thing, irrespective of whether or not you've got a sense of exactly where this is headed. I've said this before, and it's really true. I didn't set out to become a preacher. And I didn't set out to pastor this church. That was not in my plan. But as I started stepping into the matter of discipleship, call it 15 to 20 years ago, and started trying to follow God and go where God would have me to go, at that time in my life, it was much more like, just go to a place I will show you. Follow me and go to a place I will show you. Now, the Bible talks about a good shepherd, right? And If you think about that metaphor, how often are the sheep following the shepherd really aware of what their final destination may be? They don't know much of anything. 
If they've got any sense, they're just trying to stay close to the shepherd and follow his instructions, stay with the flock, and keep moving in the direction he wants them to move. When they wander off, that's when trouble starts, right? But very rarely in that metaphor can you imagine a sheep thinking, well, I know where we're going. In two weeks, we're going to be at this lovely pasture over here. They don't know any of that. If they've got any sense, what they're doing is they're just following the shepherd, right? And I think that's how it is in our lives. I, I didn't know, as I started trying to become a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, I had no idea where I would land and what the final destination was, at least in terms of what things are today. Might have been a good thing that I didn't know. <laughs> um, you know, in a state of spiritual immaturity, someone saying to me, if you go down this path, in 20 years, you're going to be the pastor of a church. That might have been terrifying to me. But this is a land that God will show you, right? It kind of comes down to this. Do you trust the shepherd? He says he's a good shepherd. And Hebrews calls him a great shepherd. And you're a sheep. So who are you going to trust? You're going to trust your own weak, pathetic sheep mind or are you going to trust the shepherd who's leading you to greener pastures? Well, I set that before you. All those things run contrary to the way men's minds think, tend to want to have it all figured out, and there's going to be some discomfort involved in it. Look at Proverbs 13. I want to show you something right quick. This is one of the things that I think God's people get wrapped around the axle on, and I want to set it before you because it's been a problem for me in my life at times. Have you ever had the thought, that, you know, wicked people out there having all the fun getting ahead. They're doing all the cool stuff. And, you know, God's people, have, we're fuddy-duddies. We don't get to do all the fun stuff. You know, they're out there living it up. And our lives are relatively boring and uninteresting in comparison to that. Now, that's a carnal thought, but it's one that I think most people have at one time or another. The Bible supports the idea that we have that thought, by the way. And I've certainly had it, and I confess that before you. But... Years ago, there was a sermon preached here. It was one of the first annual meetings that I was a part of, and Elder Gary Harvey was here, and he preached on this verse. It really stuck with me, this, this one thing, and it's a lesson we do well to take to heart. Verse 15 says, Good understanding giveth favor, but the way of transgressors is hard. Now, this is talking about God's people. If you're in the mindset that, okay, I'm one of God's children, and I know God would have me to do certain things, but I think it would be better for me if I didn't do those things. This is what this is talking about. If you know what God would have you to do, and you're trying to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus Christ, you say, I'm just going to transgress against what God would have me to do. That's the way that's hard for God's people. It will dog you in your conscience initially, and it will dog you with consequences in your life to the extent that you just rebel and become, as the Bible describes it, a stiff-necked person, right? Where you just say, I'm just going to resist this. I'm just not going to do it. The way of transgressors is hard. You see, the thing that we've got to embrace here is that if God wants you to do something, that's the thing you must do. It's not that you can't resist it. Yeah, you can do that. You can resist it and bring all measure of judgment and calamity and condemnation into your life. You can certainly do that. I'm living proof I've done it at times in my life. I bear the stripes of my own foolishness in this respect. 
You know why that is? It's because the way of transgressors is hard. When you're fighting against what God would have you to do over and over and over again, you're going to be under the disciplinary rod of God. It may be just in your conscience. It may be in a whole host of circumstances that come to bear on you. But that's just how it is. So it's good as a mature person, as a mature Christian to say, you know what? Thy way, not mine, O Lord. We sing that. We come in here and sing it. We put our church pants on. Let's sing, Thy way, not mine, O Lord. But we need to live it. You see that? Do we really believe it? That is one of the ways probably to encapsulate the greatest conflict that man has in his Christian walk is do we really believe thy way, not mine, O Lord? Because that my way thing is very strong. Very strong in all of us. We all want our way. We've been raised in a consumer mindset, right? It's hold the pickles, hold the lettuce. We want it our way, just like at Burger King. That's the way we've been taught that we should get it. And it just doesn't work that way in your Christian discipleship. And we need to embrace the idea that it's the way of transgressors that is hard. It's when we resist God that we experience the difficulties in this. And we can be blessed to the extent that we obey God and do as we ought. Now, there's another aspect of this. This is an individual thing. So there are certain things I mentioned that God would have you to do. There's certain things that God would have all of us to do. He wants us to obey and live by His precepts. If you're a believer on the Lord Jesus Christ, He wants you to join the New Testament church under the sound of the gospel. You should submit to the waters of baptism. Those are things that He would have all of His children do who have come under the sound of the gospel. But that doesn't mean that everything He's got for Brother Sonny to do is something that He would have for someone else to do. You see that? There's other things that we have. That's kind of that calling, the specifics of the calling. Brother Sonny was called to pastor the church. Abraham was called to leave Ur, right? All kinds of different sorts of callings in this life. And God's people get kind of messed up on this issue too. We get way too focused on what God's called someone else to do and not nearly focused enough on what He's called us to do. In John chapter 21 and verse 20 we find this testimony. Then Peter, turning about, seeth the disciple whom Jesus loved following that's John, which also leaned on his breast at supper and said, Lord, which is he that betrayeth thee? Peter, seeing him, saith to Jesus, Lord, and what shall this man do? <laughs> I tell you what, there's been a lot of trouble stirred up in the old Baptist church and probably a lot of other Christian orders over the idea of getting really focused on what God will have somebody else do. If we put half as much interest in what God would have us do into what we put in what He'd have somebody else do, I think we'd be better served by that approach. What shall this man do? Jesus saith unto him, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? I love that response. He's like, what are you? That's between me and John is what Jesus is saying. Right? Whatever I tell him to do, that's what I tell him to do. And his obedience to it, that's between me and him. It's a direct relationship between him and John. And Peter's got no say in the matter. What is that to you? Right? Anytime we get focused on what you think God may be calling somebody else to do, 
I would immediately stop from that. There might be some curiosity in it. I know we're curious people. We might wonder sometime. But you should stop to say, you know what? What is God calling me to do? And am I doing it? <laughs> Very convicting. Funny how we're so curious about everybody else and lacking curiosity about ourselves. What is that to thee? Follow thou me. In other words, that's between us. You follow me. You do what I told you to do. Right? Great lesson. Now, as if that's not convicting enough, I'm going to look to a couple more verses. Verse 23, Then went this saying abroad among the brethren that the disciples should not die. Okay, so now we've gone from trying to wonder what God's got somebody else to do. It's, are they, you know, I think God has called John to do this. I'm not sure he's doing that like he should. Well, if I was him, I would do it this way. I'm going to go over there and tell John he ought to probably do it a different way. I mean, that's the kind of stuff that gets stirred up. And then on top of that, the vain speculation bleeds over into kind of bad doctrine after that, right? Now they're like, well, uh, I heard that Jesus said that he's not going to die. Did Jesus ever say that? Jesus made an example, right? He said, if it's of my desire, if I want him to be here till I come back, what does that matter to you? That's not saying at all that Jesus has affirmed that John's going to live until the second coming. But you see, if you're wrongheaded and you're thinking about how these things apply to you and how you need to follow God and you're focused on somebody else, it's not going to be hard for you to be off the mark and misinterpret other things that the Lord says and come up with wild conclusions. Yet Jesus said, not unto him ye shall not die. Right? Jesus never said that. But if I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? You see, it's very clear the point that Jesus is making it's not that John's going to live forever, and you kind of have to be in an ignorant place in some respects to take that to that level and say, well, hey, Jesus said John's never going to die. So this kind of folly breeds bad things. I think it's a cautionary word about how we need to be more focused on our own service to God rather than getting focused on somebody else's service. I see in this an audit trail that starts with, I'm way over focused on what some other brother's doing in serving God to such an extent that I'm now starting to misapply things that the Lord has said and come up with wild conclusions about it. It's not your business. What is that to thee? Is what Jesus said, right? So God's going to command you to do something. There's going to be things God wants you to do, will have you to do. And I think you'll know them in your conscience. And I think that as you pursue the Lord in sincerity, in prayer and in discipleship, that direction will become more clear to you in many respects. And we do well to follow it because transgressing it is a hard way. Well, going back to Abraham as we kind of try to close this up here, back in chapter 12, it says he's going to be blessed. And Abraham was blessed. In verse 2 it says, And I will make of thee a great nation. Now remember, Sarai was barren, right? You're coming into a situation where he knows his wife can't have children. So right off the bat, saying, I'm going to make you a great nation is a blessing that is difficult to believe. The gospel comes to God's people. And in many respects, I think the gospel, the good news of the gospel of the grace of Christ, is one of those things that's too good to believe. We recognize something about ourselves that we are spiritually barren. 
There's something that God's people recognize. It's like, I can't make things right with God. There's nothing I can do to fix the problem of all the sin that I've practiced in my thoughts, and it just permeates who I am. I am barren to produce anything spiritually good. You see that? I can't bring something forth and say, look, God, here's this good thing. I'm now going to set it before you. I don't have it within me. That's what dead and trespasses and in sins means. It means that you're spiritually barren from a standpoint of you're unable to produce something good. Jesus Christ once said there's none good but God, right? Somebody called him good. He's making that same point. So there's a sense in which in the gospel era, it's coming to a people who are spiritually barren in the sense that in our natural state, we have no ability to produce anything that can correct the problem. And in this promise to Abraham, which is a temporal and natural promise that foreshadows spiritual things, you would have to imagine that it's difficult to believe. Usually when you have a situation where a woman is barren, it's a difficult matter. And it's often something that visits a lot of distress into a family. And I think in most instances, it's something that is struggled with for a season. And after that season, people are resigned to the reality of it, right? There's a point at which you're like, I can't keep hoping that I'm going to have a child. You see, it becomes almost too painful. And so there's a time in most instances where that chapter closes and when you just say, this person is barren. They can't have children. And now I have to the woman and the family has to readjust their thinking about what this person's life is going to be. And people become very settled in that idea. I feel certain that was the case here with Sarai because she's referred to as, look, this woman's barren. It's not like, well, they've been married for three months and she's not pregnant yet, right? It's more like, no. There's been a season here sufficient to where we recognize she is barren. So the promise that he's given here, I will make of thee a great nation and I will bless thee and make thy name great and thou shalt be a blessing. And I will bless them that bless thee and curse him that curseth thee. And in thee shall all the families of the earth be blessed. It's a very difficult promise to believe. Just the natural inclination of man in this circumstance, having dealt with that painful situation, it'd be very difficult to believe God in this promise, right? But what do we find in verse 4? So Abram departed. Hebrews chapter 11 verse 8 makes it clear that Abram departed by faith. That means that no matter how strong his natural inclination to say, I don't see how on earth God can deliver on this promise. I don't see any way possible. My wife is barren. We're going to leave. Don't know where we're going. I'm going to be some great nation. He's going to give me a land. I don't know how this is going to play out. Nevertheless, Abram departed. He did so believing that he would be blessed in the matter. 
Some people, when you look at this, the natural inclination might be to say, I'm going to be blessed. I don't feel like I'm blessed. Am I really blessed in the way that's being talked about here? Well, look, if you turn over to Job chapter 14, I think that when people talk about blessing in the context of Christianity, it is too often what I call rose garden Christianity. It's as though becoming a Christian is going to eliminate all your problems and visit nothing but a continual waterfall of blessings of all manner into your life. This is kind of the health and wealth and prosperity gospel, right? You follow God, you're going to get rich and healthy and you're going to have whiter teeth and fresher breath. But the Bible's testimony is a little bit more like that Lynn Anderson song, I beg your pardon, I never promised you a rose garden. The Bible's very honest about the idea that there's going to be difficulty in the life of a Christian and that the blessings you have are largely spiritual in nature that are promised to God's people. He's blessed us in many other ways. But the Bible's very honest that we're going to have difficulty in this life. Some secular people who have tried to define what life is, I've heard some people say, well, I define life as suffering. Now that's fairly insightful. Somewhat biblical. Job chapter 14, verse 1, man that is born of a woman is a few days and full of trouble. Well, I mean, the Bible just puts it right between your eyes on this subject. This idea of Rose Garden Christianity where everything's just going to be wonderful and you're skipping down Hallelujah Avenue is a recipe for disappointment at a minimum. And it's just a false gospel. All of the saints of God had difficulty in their lives, and yet they were blessed. We're going to find in Abram's life that he runs into a lot of difficulties, a lot of tough situations, and yet was blessed in the midst of all of that. You find Paul writing epistles that we've read in this church where he's sitting in a filthy Roman prison. He's writing letters that say rejoice, rejoice, rejoice over and over again. He's got a spiritual blessing from following the Lord that so transcends the misery of his circumstances that in the midst of that he can say, I'm blessed. And I believe that he was. We often want to contest the idea that God's going to bless us because we maybe look at some aspects of suffering in our lives, but we're not promised that we're not going to have any suffering. But we are promised that we're going to be blessed. In recent days, I'll, I'll close on this, I've had some interaction with uh, Sister Virginia Reese, who's having a lot of pain and affliction in her latter days. And she, she told me that she's having trouble sleeping at night and, you know, she's just in a lot of pain. And uh, she's on the prayer list at church and, and uh, I'm praying for her. But she was looking for some kind of comfort in all that. And I know a lot of times when we have our medical issues and whatnot, we're looking for temporal relief of those things. And I, I pray that sister gets that. I pray that any of you who are struggling with any sort of affliction like that, that you'll get the temporal relief in the here and now that you deserve. But it's not guaranteed you're always going to get that. And so you've got to look beyond this world if you're going to find hope in those circumstances. You may come to a point in your life where you are old enough to where there is no reasonable expectation that you're going to have all your medical situations corrected and you're going to feel like you're 18 years old again. 
If you are constantly trying to place your hope on deliverance in that sense, there's a point at which deliverance in the temporal realm will fail you. You've got to look to the hope we have in Christ. You've got to look to the hope of the resurrection. When you see your body deteriorating and you're having these issues, and some people say, well, that just seems so morbid. You're talking about death. Here's a person that you're trying to comfort and you're talking about death and deliverance. I'm telling you, death is our ultimate deliverance. You may not believe that now. I'm not even sure I believe it now to the extent that I ought to. But we're all going to believe it one of these days and not too far away. God has blessed us in our temporal affairs in this life, and I don't think there's anybody in this church who wouldn't raise their hand and say, I can give you 50 instances off the top of my head where God blessed me in temporal affairs. But unless the Lord comes back before you die, your temporal affairs and blessings will cease in this lifetime. And it all revolves around the hope we have in the resurrection and a life everlasting. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.